many people don't feel like jumping each other's bones after a long day of work is because the gap between where they are and let's say an orgasm. So let's say this is zero and this is 100. Zero being you're barely in your body, 100 you're having a you know, full body orgasm. Let's say that, you know, that's the, so when you come home from work or you've, you know, maybe you come home from work and then you're dealing with your children, right? And then you're finally done with all of this. You might be at 20, right? You might feel your body some, but not. And the, the gap between here and a hundred is so large that it's too much of a chore on top of all the other chores, and that's one of the reasons why many women would rather have a cup of tea, you know, which is totally understandable. So uh, there's a few things to consider, one of which is that sometimes it's probably a better choice to have a good cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Right? And what I mean by that is sexual pleasure and sexual engagement should never be a chore. And when it becomes the thing that also needs to be done by its very nature, it loses, uh, you know, some of its luster or glamour or something like that. So um, there's one aspect where you can just consider, well, maybe certain times of your life and certain times of the months and certain times within a cycle of the relationship, it's not that hot and heavy. Right. Then on the other hand, you can, of course, consider that if you neglect it ongoingly, you, on one end, get out of the habit of your body being able to access those aspects. It might damage your relationship, your intimacy. It's also not good for your hormones and things of that nature. So there's a fine line between putting pressure on yourself in an unreasonable way and becoming lazy or disinterested till it's too late and then having to work really, really hard to recover it at a point where it's too late, which is usually if somebody starts cheating or if the, you know, we must do this or we will get a divorce or whatever people do, right? So you don't want to wait that long. And at the same time, you don't want to be unrealistic. So within that um, scope, you can then consider, well, what can you do that makes your body more alive and receptive? Because the key to sexual pleasure um, is aliveness, or being in your body is another way of saying that, right? Or feeling life force moving through your body. And that you can't fake. People do it all the time, but, you know, meaning you, people go to stripper classes and stuff like that. But that's not um, ultimately satisfying because you can be all dead inside and do good stripper moves on a pole, right? That's not the same as having sensual pleasure as you move your body on a pole or otherwise. So how can you bring your general aliveness, sensuality factor from, let's say, 20 to 70, And because then when you are at 70, so to speak, your ability to actually engage in the relational aspect, which is a whole other can of worms, because you also need your partner to be in their body and you need to deal with all the dynamics that come with a relationship and blah, blah, blah. It's amazing that people have sex at all, really, you know, (laughs) considering all these factors, which are real real issues right but for yourself before you come to your partner you at least want to be alive in your body so that your alive body brings life to your partner's body who's equally disembodied if not more so if you happen to like to have sex with men they tend to you know be less in their body than women for the most part nowadays it's no longer totally true because most women now are in extremely disembodying situations but um you know men in in their natural way will go into the the head to deal with things and they don't suffer as much from that because that's the way they get things done and it's much easier to bring a man back into his body than it is to bring a woman back into her body at the end of the day which is unfortunate 
So that all said, one of the things you can do very easily is finding pleasure that's already there, but you haven't noticed. That's the, that's the key. There's a very specific technique that I've developed over the years that you can use, but you could also take a bath, um, give yourself a massage, uh, move your body, um, you know, dress yourself in a way that's very pleasing. So all the things that bring life back into your body. And only when you have life back into your body do you go and engage with your partner in that way. Right? So otherwise, it's just going to be horrible, you know? <laughs> as you probably well know. Right? And also the other part of that, and that brings us to the couples aspect of this, in most relationships, um, through the mechanics of having to become the same, meaning you have children together, you're running a household together, you have to have the same interests and the same focus and the same goals and the same activities. And that sameness makes for a functioning relationship, but it depolarizes the sexual spark. Mm -hmm. So how you repolarize the sexual spark in a relationship is by making yourself very different. So which means that whoever is the partner that brings life force and pleasure to the occasion has to be full-bodied in the ability to transmit life. Right? So you coming back in your body and accessing your own pleasure will automatically polarize the relationship, which then makes it easier to engage sexually. So... In a sexual relationship, and mind you, it's really important to, to consider this as a sexual relationship and not as a lifestyle, because some people go a little bit overboard there and everything becomes about the masculine and the feminine, which is utterly unworkable, because you can't do that in regular life without causing great pain to everyone. But within your sexual life, you'll um, discover that you enjoy one pole or one side of the equation more than the other. So in order for two people, and it's not important that that's man and woman, could be two women or two men, but for in order for two people to have a spark in their sexuality, one has to play one pole, the other one has to play the other pole. So Poles would be plus minus, dark light, masculine, feminine, go flow. Um, so those are the poles. And the more uh, opposite the poles are, you always hear opposites attract, right? There's a spark between the, let's say, masculine pole and feminine pole. And masculine, feminine is not the same as men, women. But let's just say the person who likes to be the penetrator, the person who likes to surrender, so whoever wants to penetrate has to be very penetrative, and whoever wants to surrender has to be very surrendered, and that creates the strong arc. If you are both penetrating, it goes like this, and that's very unpleasant. It usually creates massive friction um, and fights. If both of you are surrendering, nothing happens. It's not very exciting. might be sensual. It's like a, you know, kind of a... In, in America, it would be like a Burning Man situation. I don't know what you have here as far as festivals go, right? Where everybody's just so, ah, oh, la, la, loosey-goosey and playful and it's somewhat sensual, but it's not really hot. So that, that would be the two options. You know, conflict, nothing gets done, but it's a lot of fun. Or one person gives the direction, the other person relaxes and releases into that direction. So that's polarization, meaning creating opposites. Of course you can take turns. Yeah. yeah. No, no, it's, not, it's just one at a time, meaning, meaning you, can, you should take turns. It's, that's why I'm saying it's highly pathological when people go into the, I am a man, I am always in control, I, you know, and they conflate masculine with men. Every human being has both aspects, the, you know, and 50-50, that's the way it goes, right? Shiva Shakti in the tantric traditions, it's 50-50. It's just you have a sexual preference. And your sexual preference will be on the, on the end of surrender and flow or on the end of penetration. But that's your preference. It's not your 
one gear that you must be stuck in for the rest of your life, right? It's what you enjoy. And then in a good sexual play, it goes back and forth all the time. And that's what makes it really fun. But if both people flip into one, which sometimes happens, it gets boring. So how you keep it from being boring is you make sure that it's always on the opposites. And that's, that's the fun part. You have a preference. Your preference is the 80% way, right? The also fun is the 20% way. So most people have a clear preference over, and rarely anybody's 50-50. Some people are more extreme than others. Um, and it changes over time as well, right? I certainly know that the more directive and um, fast-paced and full-on my life became, the more my preference sexually would go the other way. Mm -hmm. right? The last thing I want to do in the bedroom is direct anybody or tell them what to do or mm -hmm. uh, be responsible for space and time and whatever, right? Because my whole life revolves around that in, in my work. So, but when I was in my 20s, it certainly wasn't as pronounced. No. It was much more like maybe, I don't know, 60, 40. Now it's definitely in the 90-10 department, I'd say, you know. That's a huge topic, and I think it's more and more a very important topic because there's such a trend to condemn all things masculine as toxic, which is really, really dangerous in, in so many domains, right? Because there is, of course, very healthy and very beautiful and very useful masculinity in men and women. And it's become kind of a, a way, you know, a thing to disown that. And so how you do it in yourself, it's, it's a different discussion with a man, but how you would do it for yourself is that you would look at what you consider the unhealthy pattern. So I'll give you one that comes up all the time when people work with me, where they say, I have such push Right? I have masculine push. When I get things done, I get very aggressive and tight and mean and I can no longer feel people and I'm just getting shit done. Right? That, so then they call that toxic or whatever. So, um, so that would be, I'm giving you this as an example. So the distinction there would be that the push is unnecessary. And where push usually comes from, you know what I mean with push, right? Where push usually comes from is a lack of relaxation. And it usually comes from having learned whatever patterns or, or activities that you have to perform under stress. And so let's, let's talk about the work, right? So if you if you taught yourself to get things done with a fair share of stress involved, you didn't have enough time or maybe you had money issues, so you had to figure things out really quickly, or you were in an office where a lot of pressure was put on you and you had a lot of fear, and so you learned getting things done in a stressful environment where your body had a lot of tension that gets now woven in with the activity of getting it done. Right? So I'm, you know, let, let's pick one activity. Um, writing emails. This, is, this has always been an issue for me, right? Writing emails. I hate writing emails. I don't know about you, but I get hundreds a day. Hundreds. You know, if I don't do my emails... Uh, for two days, I have seven, eight hundred emails in my inbox, and those are not the ones that my office handles, mind you, right? So, so when I open my inbox, it's like. <laughs> so in my body, immediately something happens, which is kind of a, right? And my shoulders come up, and my neck gets tight, and I can feel the tension in the core of my body because. Over the years, my response to email is reloaded every time I open my computer. So it has a habitual pattern of its own. So you could then call that an unhealthy masculine pattern of, you know, having to be in my head and doing email. But as a matter of fact, I could relax my body 
and eliminate that tension and that fear and the annoyance and the resistance that I have to do emails again. It's like washing dishes. You have to constantly do it. So it's the same with emails. So if I relax that, then I can apply myself to that email with all the energy that I don't have to spend on tensing and tightening and everything. And I'm probably a lot faster and my body isn't as uh, much in pain. Because I can, you know, I can end up like this at the end of a day of just doing emails. So the strategies there would be to examine where you have push, where you have other things wrapped in that you consider unhealthy and that probably are unhealthy, and undo those and essentially relearn the activity without the tension, pressure, and stress. Right. That's one way of doing it. Then, of course, you have other options as well. If um, you're lacking, let's say, focus or concentration, which some people do, you can train yourself to have focus and concentration via meditation, for instance, right? 10 minutes a day where you just sit. No fancy technique, but just sit and you just allow yourself to learn how to sit for 10 minutes without doing something. And then when you can sit for 10 minutes without doing something and, you, and your body is somewhat open and relaxed, you can apply that then to what you consider another unhealthy masculine pattern and stuff like that. So you can move yourself into it sideways via meditation, let's say, or other... Um, concentrated, uh, structured movement, for instance, right? So those kind of things would train your masculine. You could also consider that certain things are just going to have a toll on your body and you counteract them with some movement, like the stuff we're doing here, the nonlinear movement or some dancing or a bath or some pleasure practice. So you could do one or the other or both. Maybe I'll do a whole workshop once on that. <laughs> but another way is ritual. Now that's one of the big benefits of ritual is that you entrain yourself for a certain activity with a certain ritual. Right? Like So for instance, when I start working or when I, well, now I no longer have an office, um, but when I still used to have an office, meaning before my freaking house burned down, you know, <laughs> I would spend every, I had a very specific setup and I had a little office altar. And um, every day before I started work, I followed a very specific set of rituals, so to speak, right? I, I made sure that there were fresh flowers there. I rearranged it slightly. Usually I had to brush some cat hair off the thing because my cat, of course, you know cats, they, they have to be in the most inopportune places at all times, you know. So I'd make it really fresh. I'd make sure there's fresh flowers there. I'd light the candle. I'd light some Palo Santo. And then I'd start working. And by the virtue of doing that every day, my body would click into a kind of a focused state. Then I would go at it, right? When I wrote the book, I had six weeks to write this book in the summer between the beginning of July and the third week of August or something. That was it. And so I uh, had to write between 14 and 16 hours a day, every day. Right? So what I did uh, is I spent each morning in the exact same way. And I did a certain set of exercises and rituals every morning before I started so that my, my brain, so to speak, reset to the task at hand. And then I just stuck with it right? over and over and over and over. By the end of the writing process, it was so automatic that when the song, I listened to the same song every morning. Actually, one of the songs I played for you when you did uh, Nonlinear there, the last, the, the second to last song, I listen to that song every morning, first thing in the morning. And when that first thing of the song comes up, everything in my body goes, right, right, right. <laughs> in a really nice way. It's like I was listening to it here for the first time in a while. It was like, oh, uh, because 
it, it reloads the activity. So you can train your whole system with the help of ritual to reload positive you know, attention to the activity. And it's useful to have music and have smell and have visuals and have representations. The more senses you can involve... Like when you, those of you who know me know that I'm never without a cup of tea. Because to me, tea is the activity that sets something in motion. So, you know, you use taste, you use smell, you use your eyes, you use touch, you use objects, and that sets you on the way. Well, first of all, nothing's wrong, right? And so what I mean by that is... Different times of one's life and different moments in time require a different focus. So it's not necessarily wrong to not be wildly sexual for a while uh, because chances are pretty good that if, you know, you meet Mr. Perfect, it would all come online really quickly, mm-hmm. right? So it's by no means dead or gone or not recoverable. However, for... Um, a number of reasons it's very useful to have a personal pleasure practice is one way of saying that. Um, one of which, of course, is your health, right? your, your, phys- your actual physical hormonal health, because it's a little bit after a certain age, it's a bit of a use it or lose it kind of situation, just bodily speaking. Also, just mood-wise, very good idea. Uh, but furthermore, sexual energy is, of course, one of the most useful uh, driving creative forces there is, particularly in a woman, where you, you're, you know, you're not ejaculating out your, your drive, so to speak. You're actually amping your... There is ways you can do that as well as a woman, but if you don't do that, you're essentially becoming kind of a generator of, of creative energy. So... If you want to re-access that, the way to go is in increments. And so the first, the first uh, step I would suggest, that's, you know, different people say different things, but the first steps would be uh, an active, sensual engagement with your body. So those are things like um, caring for your body in the form of uh, baths, massages, um, taking time to, you know, to be with your body, touching certain parts of your body, finding things to wear at home that feel pleasurable. So where you kind of go away from the utility of dressing in, you know, sweatpants and you wear something for the pure joy of feeling it on your body, right? Not all the time, but for a bit so that your senses come online, eating things you really enjoy, smelling things, all the things I just told Angela about undoing patterns also work with engaging with your own senses. Once your senses are alive, then you can start playing with moving your body. And as we've talked about, you know, in a break, you'll notice that certain parts of your body feel more locked or painful than others. So you can work with that specifically and open certain parts of the body and get body work done and, you know, all of those kind of things. And then in addition to that, you'll start a pleasure practice. And what makes a pleasure practice slightly different than masturbating, just randomly, is that you use it specifically to engage with the part of you that is pro or against pleasure. And we both have a pro and con part, right? It's not true that it's not true that people don't have caps on pleasure. People have huge, you know, downward regulating things on pleasure for a number of reasons that have to do with previous trauma in the body, conditioning, habit forces, uh, capacity, right? So if you haven't had a lot of engagement with your own pleasure, you'll, uh, you know, if you have like a kinked garden hose that's been in the sun for a while, you don't want to hook it up to a fire engine, right? You want to undo it and moisturize it slowly. So, and then you can grow capacity from there. So pleasure practice in its very nature engages you with your, with your capacity for pleasure. So 
you'll say, okay, well, I'll do 10 minutes a day, morning or evening, whenever. And then so forth, you set the timer, and for 10 minutes, you do things to your body that are pleasurable. Right? Could be uh, touching your skin, could be massaging your breasts, could be masturbation of any kind, but you just say 10 minutes a day, and then in those 10 minutes, you'll notice what happens. I don't feel like it. I'm too tired. Why am I doing this? Then you get into a hole. I'm all alone. This is horrendous. Why do I have to do this for myself? Right? All of those kind of things show up. And that's the thing that you then undo by going, I don't care. I'm still going to just stick with it for 10 minutes. Right? You have to ignore all the little things that happen and just stick with it. And then you'll go up to 15, and then you'll go up to 20. And at some point, you'll experiment with different kinds of orgasms when you, when you are over the first hump of actually giving yourself pleasure. And, and depending on how you feel, this is your own process, you will settle on something that you can sustain. Right? Most people can't sustain two hours a day, right? <laughs> but you can probably sustain 10, 15 minutes a day. So that's, that's how I would play it, till you're capable of supplying yourself with as much pleasure as you ever can uh, endure, so to speak. Right? Which has a whole other implication, which means that you're no longer needy, which means you can choose a much better man, right? because you're not coming to the buffet starved. Right? Where the first, you know, you, if you've ever been at an all you can eat buffet, right? Your first uh, round of food picks is probably not the healthiest, right? You, you're like carbs and potatoes and, you know, all of that. And it's the same with men. If you are, you know, if, if you are well fed, so to speak, you're going to engage with potential food sources, so to speak, very different. And then, of course, there's the other aspect that if you can bring full-bodied pleasure to your relationship already, the, the, the potential for real, exciting co-creation to happen is a lot bigger. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you'd uh, sustain actual physical uh, sexual practices, so you'd, like, do... I don't know, G-spot massage for an hour continuously, right? Stuff like that on your own. I wouldn't, in, in self-pleasure practice, I would never, ex never involve a partner because it's not exactly sexy, right? Uh, meaning, okay, I'm setting the alarm. For 30 minutes, we now must do this, right? That has ruined many a good relationship. That's not to say that when you have a willing partner, you can't ever so often say, uh, let's explore this or whatever, but it shouldn't be the largest part of your sexual engagement. Right? Uh, but for yourself, you can engage in areas where you feel that you could use a little bit of um, practice or relaxation or things like that. You can touch areas of your body that you usually don't touch till they become highly alive, like there right? or something like that. You find... You find ever more places that you can sensitize and play with so that your entire body becomes kind of an instrument of pleasure. I'm kind of meh about the jade egg, and why I'm kind of meh about it is it's so far down the line of what you can do with your own body for yourself that it wouldn't be my first go-to. Right? It's useful, but... One of the things that's also a bit, I'm making generalizations here. There is people who can definitely use JDEG practice, and I certainly have done my share in, in my 20s. But for most people, their pelvic floor is too tight, right? And the reason why people no longer have continence on their pelvic floor isn't because they're... Uh, I mean, there is some women who are worn out from childbirth, right? But there's a lot of women, they've held habitual tension in their lowest layer of their pelvic floor for so long that their muscles are worn out. And now the estrogen goes down a bit, and now suddenly they pee themselves, 
this is a huge thing if you don't know about that, right? And so the key there is not to make muscles that are already habitually over-tightened more tight, right? It's actually to relax those muscles, give them a rest, and articulate other muscles that are not worn out. So that would be the second or third layer of the pelvic floor. And so, for instance, you're much better off doing proper squats than doing Kegel exercises. So there's all these things that you can consider that you would want to consider before you do a JDAG practice, simply because unless you have somebody who works with you and can really feel all those muscles, and um, which is useful. I had that once done by some really bizarre, <laughs> I mean, bizarre guy. I just had a flash of that guy. <laughs> this was in my 20s where I was way less squeamish. The dude was like, he, he thought he was channeling aliens or something. He would always wear this, you know, like, like the, the, the Kundalini people wear those turbans. He had one of yeah. those on, but he wasn't one, right? But he, had like, he looked like a baker or something. He was <laughs> dressed in white and he did all these prayers. He was super clean energetically, but he was just weird as fuck. But his whole thing, and he was really, really good, and I sent him lots of people. His whole thing was he would educate you to your pelvic floor. And then... You know, he'd poke somewhere and go, well, this ligament's very tight, do this. And so he'd, he'd te- teach you how to actually regulate all those muscles in the pelvic floor. And there's people who do that now more than ever because yoni mapping has become quite the thing. Mm-hmm. But some people are better at it than others. This guy was, he worked with women who had like horrible injuries during childbirth and rehabbed their muscles and all you know he's like a physical therapist for that whole region so i would rather somebody engage in that than randomly squeeze an egg up and down and if you're anything like one of my friends you should not wear thongs and go to the supermarket with an egg in (laughs) (laughs) and have a sneeze Yes. (laughs) One of the most spectacular moments I remember around the jade egg was was that she sneezed in the supermarket and the egg shot out and broke into a million pieces right there in front of the milk chest. And she very nonchalantly brushed the rubble under the chest and moved on. So, yeah, so I'm not against the jade egg. I just think it's one of those fad thingies, right? Now everybody is the priestess of the jade egg. And then when we're done with that, something else comes. And it's all good because it makes people more aware. But, right, most people don't spend enough touching their own bodies in pleasurable ways. I'd, I'd start, you know, I'd start there. And then work my way up to fancy equipment <laughs> of any kind. Right? Yeah. There's some woman, though, I, I always hear about who supposedly can lift a surfboard with her right. vagina. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I've heard that. There's some woman in L.A. who supposedly, that's her, that's her whole shtick. You can find her on Instagram, I'm sure. But in general, the body has mechanisms that, uh, that are there to keep us alive. And um, over the you know, millennia, we have, of course, uh, developed a whole lot of uh, capacity above survival. But survival is still what drives us underneath all of it, because otherwise we wouldn't be here, right, as a species and as individuals. So our nervous system is built to... Um, respond to certain input in a way that gives us maximum survival. And so there is a mechanism that all of you, of course, know, which is called fight or flight. And fight or flight is the um, nervous system's response to danger. But within fight or flight, there's also a third uh, option, that's not so often discussed. And it's usually discussed in, in the realm of trauma because that, that's where it's most applicable. And that is freeze. 
So fight and flight are pretty easy to understand, right? Something imagined or real creates danger, and that could be anything from uh, you know you being attacked on the street to you having extremely negative thoughts. Right? Doesn't matter. The body doesn't know if it's a real threat or meaning real threat of somebody attacking you or perceived threat of your own internal self-talk attacking you. Right? So fight is pretty easy to detect because fight will produce a response in which all your systems activate in order to be able to attack with as much strength as possible. And of course, what that means is uh, your blood starts pumping like crazy, your heartbeat increases, uh, enormous amounts of adrenaline gets dumped into the system to accomplish that. You get tingling, you get like a kind of a tunnel vision so you can focus on the thing at hand and you, you um, experience strong aggression, right? That's fight, pretty easy. Flight, also pretty easy. Same things happen, but you have a strong fear response so that you can run, right? Freeze is an interesting one because in freeze you essentially hunker down. Right? It is said, and there's lots of research done on this, that because of how survival happened in the early days of human development, women tend to freeze while men tend to go into fight as a primary response. Now, Men sometimes freeze too, and certainly women can also fight, so it's not always, but that the general tendency is such that women tend to freeze because imagine you're out there in the bush, right, and some saber-toothed tiger shows up. Well, women and children will disappear into the grass, so to speak, right? And so there is a whole response in the system where the vagus nerve produces a slowing down of the system in extreme stress. And um, I once, for a while, while I was in, in school, in, in university in Austria, um, worked uh, uh, in an ambulance. Right? You can, there's, when you're in med school, you can do all kinds of weird jobs, one of which is you can co-drive in an ambulance. And um, you'd often see that when people come out of a shock situation, an accident or so, that some people had very low pulse and it would be considered a shock response because essentially their body shut down into freeze while other people were very, you know, up and aggressive and had to be strapped down and things like that. And so it's sometimes hard to detect uh, freeze as a, sh as a trauma response because it looks very calm. It uh, also reads very calm when you actually feel the body, right, when you take the pulse and stuff like that. So... What freeze, that, that's, that's the bigger picture, right? So fight and flight are easy to deal with because you can tell it's happening. Freeze is insidious because to the person frozen and often feels like you're perfectly okay, right? You kind of just feel a bit like, okay, okay, yeah. But, but you feel fine. And often when I used to see clients, right, I'd say, are you okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I feel actually fine. I'm, I'm surprised I'm that calm. Well, you're not calm, you're frozen, right? And, but but the, there's an aspect of frozen that's, of course, really good, which is you can cope. You're not freaking out. You're not losing your shit and causing destruction or get caught, so to speak, because you're not racing around in the underbrush, right? You, you're you know, just subdued. Um, it's not work, of course, in a... Um, non-threatening situation, meaning when your body um, over time has become habituated to being frozen because you have previous triggers. This is why it's mentioned in trauma. So, but somebody, let's say, who had a violent father, right, who would come home drunk, would freeze, Right? So that's a trigger. So then, so you have a kind of an on-ramp into your freeze mechanism that can be triggered by things that are associated with previous traumas. And then can be also sometimes triggered by things that are too pleasant. It's not only that you freeze when something's horrible. It can also be too much positive sensation sometimes freezes people, like too much pleasure or something was too good and you, you just can't deal. It's an overwhelm shutdown. So... 
depending on how many triggers you have, many things might freeze you, right? And then clearly you already now know, oh, oh, right? Uh, I'm freezing. That's the first step to undoing the freeze. Because when you get that feeling that you're so still and so calm and so, you know, down, then you know that that's probably a freeze. And so what you do literally, and I've said this a few times in nonlinear, is you go, okay, 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 I'm frozen, I'm frozen. I can tell I'm frozen. Okay, blink, 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 right? So you start with blinking. If you can't do anything else, you blink. And then you go, move a finger, move a finger, move two fingers, move, move the hand, move the spine, right? And you unfreeze yourself by creating motion in the body. And often in the beginning, you'll have to talk to yourself. You'll have to go, okay, 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 come on, come on, blink, blink, okay, blink again. Now the fingers, now the toes, right? And that's how you unravel the freeze. And once the body is moving, the body can actually release these things. So one of the benefits of nonlinear movement, that's how I actually developed it because I worked in a, um, well, I ran a, a, a celebrity drug rehab. And people there were not only very demanding and impossible to deal with, but also extremely traumatized. Like most of those people had had childhood rape and trauma and I mean just like heinous shit and so I had to find something that would unfreeze people so that they could even be available for things then of course in later years when I started teaching you know it showed up all the time because people have lots of sexual trauma and hang-ups and stuff like that so one of the things of nonlinear is that you facilitate uh, enough unfreezing that your body can engage in its normal response which is kind of a trembling I don't know, have you ever had that? Yeah. So that's what you want. Yes. So you want to get your body, you want to get your body to the point where the body can do this thing that it does, the shaking, because the shaking will actually release it. And if you can't get yourself to shake, then just continue doing nonlinear till that happens. That's your best bet, because the shaking not only unfreezes you, the shaking actually releases it, and you can, over time, undo trauma that way. Yeah, it's great books on this if you ever want to read some specifics. Uh, a, you can email me. There's a man named Peter Levine who written some in another uh, Dutch doctor called Bessel van der Kolk. There's two. Body Keeps the Score, yeah. So there's a few. It's called The Body Keeps the Score, yeah. Those are some good books to, to read, to understand and, and know what you're doing. So, so that's, that's your way to deal with the freeze, is the conscious unfreezing via very minute movements. Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's two strains we can pursue, right? One of which is, of course, the uh, fairly well-examined assumption and you know these are assumptions because of course there's only so much can you can trace in 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 hindsight but there's a fairly strong assumption that celtic practice and by celtic i don't need necessarily mean british but celtic is the celtic religious um you know engagement which led all the way from uh the top of scotland to the beginning of italy right so there's a whole band that was considered Celtic, and it was not Celtic uh, as a nation, but Celtic as a as a religion or as a philosophy. Um, and the Celtic religion, in the in the its original form, wa was um, equally strong towards uh, women and men, or God and goddess, right? And they were very specifically uh, organized around women priestesses and druids, male, male priests, right? And they had distinct practices and they had distinct uh, traditions and, uh, you know, magic and, and uh, ritual and all of that. And there was none, uh, this is better than the other, they were considered one, right? And they just had two expressions, which of course is exactly what's happening in Tantra, where you have... Uh, a, essentially a hole that's broken into two halves 
for the sake of the engagement of two humans in the sexual way, right? And then internally, you know, as in you can marry these two forces internally and have to marry them internally. It's very unhealthy to negate either one of those. So those are exactly the same principles in the uh, Celtic engagement with, with that material and in the tantric engagement with that material. And then similarly, in the Celtic traditions, there's something called the Great Marriage, where a a trained priestess and a trained priest or druid, or sometimes the king of the lands, they had variations on that, as an initiation, would have a sexual engagement where where they were taken over, so to speak, by God and goddess and performed a, the rit- a ritual that was a sexual ritual called the great marriage for the sake of the land or the people or whatever. So those are kind of the the, the, the sex magic, so to speak, of the Celtic um, lands. And you can read an enormous amount of that, some of which is total folklore and some of which is researched and some of it is conjecture and some of which you read and you go, uh, yes, of course, but of course. Right? And so supposedly that then traveled. We don't know if it did, but it's supposed that it traveled since... Um, uh, English and um, Sanskrit also, I don't know if you know that, they have the same root as a language. They're called Indo-European languages. So in that in itself, you can already tell. So, and then of course, in tantric traditions, my lineage particularly, it's all about deity yoga, meaning becoming um, uh, able to merge with a goddess, so essentially becoming that goddess, not in the willy-nilly you know, uh, I'm going to a festival and put some glitter on way, but an actual, you know, meditation merging deity yoga practice that leads to you being able to merge with a deity and your partner, and you know, uh, being able to uh, merge with a male deity and then the two practitioners have sex, which is called maituna, which is also, means also the great marriage, right? for the sake of the ritual. So there I would say you can really see the similarities and it's fairly apparent um, when you also look at some of the um, older artifacts and things like that. Like for instance, so the Celtic uh, priestesses had a crescent knife. Uh, The Dakinis, the Tibetan Dakini uh, tool is called a kardaka, which is also a a crescent knife. It's usually now used by uh, men, but it, it symbolizes the female aspect. And um, so you have all these these things that you can line up in a certain way. So that makes it really interesting. And then, of course, the other strain is that all shamanic tradition followed the exact same principles. So all over the world, all shamanic traditions have a few have a few strains of consideration or practice that is essentially the same everywhere, right? So, well, I'll, I'll tell you what they found out now and then I'll tell you the different, the different engagements, right? So one of the things they found out, and I don't know if you know about this, there is now a kind of a emerging science called epigenetics. Mm-hmm. You've heard of epigenetics, right? Where they now essentially, uh, with, in, with, in mice, um, have proven that I think six or eight generations down by now, information travels on the outside of the genome. It's called the methylated chain. And that particular, that particular information carries trauma. And the trauma gets carried down through generations on the outside of the DNA. And that particular dismethylated chain turns uh, genes on and off. So if you had, if your great grandmother had trauma, which most of our ancestors have, right? I mean, whose ancestors lived in some, uh, you know, island paradise with no genocide, war, or trauma? Not very, f- I, not very few. I have a, uh, an, an acquaintance who's from uh, Fiji. Nothing ever happened there, right? And you can tell. Right? It's like the body is wide open, everything is cool, right? But in most of us, that's not the case. So your ancestor's trauma gets carried down through your body, 
And in all shamanic traditions, that's always been known. And so now they found out in the, because of course, when, you know, somebody discovers something, the pharmaceutical uh, industry immediately goes, how can we deal, how can we make meds from this, right? So they're experimenting with things that they can give to uh, free that information from the chains. And guess what? Guess what works? Shama all the shamanic things, right? Plant medicines, exactly. Ethnobotanicals of all kind, which is one of the strains that most shamanic traditions have ethnobotanical engagement, let's call it that way, right? Repetitive music, rattling and drumming, and with that repetitive trance-like movement of the body. Right? No surprise to anybody there, but, you know, there, there you have it scientifically. So, so the, the, the engagement with the, with the rhythmic beat that creates a certain kind of a biochemistry in the body and the movement that's rhythmic is a big one. Smudging, also no, no, no surprise to anybody. So the burning of certain materials, depending on tradition, they are different materials, but the, the burning and smoking out of certain things, the inhaling of smoke, the engaging with smoke, engaging with fire, right? Fire rituals are one of the big aspects of shamanic practice, you know, and then of course all uh, shamanic traditions have some concept of soul retrieval, soul retrieval being essentially the, uh, essentially the attention towards bringing the fractured pieces that happen in trauma into unity. And all different traditions have different ideas about that and concepts on the souls travel places or that, you know, there's all kinds of ways, but it all boils down to the understanding that when there's trauma, that trauma fractures the personality in a way that bits and pieces get left behind either in the moment of the abuse or through disconnection or um, through the epigenetic informing of the, of the DNA over generations, right? So, so those are the main aspects of shamanic practice in any which way and so of course those are present right in the celtic traditions and the present in the tantric traditions particularly in the more in the wilder tantric traditions meaning in the women-led tantric traditions in the one in kind of the uh, nakpa traditions right the dudes with the long hair the wild yogis in the himalayas that you, you'll see all of those shamanic practices infused in the ritual, in, in the writing, in the teaching. Uh, so. But the Siberians have it, the Native Americans have it, you know, there's very still to this day very strong European shamanic traditions. I mean, those are the things I can say quickly, right, on how does it all relate it, uh, is it related. I think the, uh, the wisdom of the shamanic tradition all over the world, you know, is, is the same, and then practices... You'll find also, right, I mean, there's a Christian mystical sexual tradition as well. It's very submerged because, of course, right, mainstream Christianity, not so down with that. But there is that. There's a very strong, uh, similarly bent tradition, you know, in the Christian. There's, of course, Sufism. There's, you know, it, it's there. And uh, the, uh, the the movement towards using sexual energy and sexual engagement as a creation of not only actual life but life force and power is also about as ancient as you know these things could come so. i think it's such a good and healthy and important thing to do before you have a child if you have that luxury right to really go am i up for this what does that mean Exactly. What does it bring up? What because as anybody in here who has children, there's quite a few people in here who, have, who raise your hand if you have children. Yeah. So anybody who has children knows that it's a sacrifice, right? It's a massive sacrifice. Well, one of the things that you'll realize pretty quickly is there's a few areas of human existence where projection runs rampant. One of which is children, right? The other one is death, right? And the and or or massive loss, where people just you know it's all it's almost all their shit, not yours. 
simply because these are very hard things to deal with. It is everything that you're experiencing is true and right, right? You're never going to be 20 again, but men were those great times, right? Yeah. Did you fight for your freedom? Absolutely, right? Um, are you now enjoying the, the, the fruits of your freedom? Yes, you are. Is it easy to give that up and rely on a man? But more importantly, um, give your life as you know it to a child? No, right? But you can't say yes till you can say no is one thing that I always tell my clients, right? Or you can't say no till you can say yes. This would be the other way around. Meaning you have to have achieved something to give it up, Right? You, you can't abdicate something you've never had. Meaning, um, there's lots of guys, you hear them, you know, like the hippie, the hippie crowd. We were just in Glastonbury. Like, you know, you probably would hear that out of every one of those guys. I don't need money, you know. I gave up on making money. Well, you never had a pot to piss in, so you didn't give something up, right? <laughs> it's one thing if you've made multiple millions and then you decide you can do without. That's an actual abdication, an actual renunciation. So when you're a woman and you decide to have a child, um, you are giving up your freedom in one domain, right? Meaning when you have a baby, you're not uh, unattached anymore. There's somebody you have to care for. But you can do that willingly when you've had the freedom because you know you can always, you, you always retain internal freedom. Right? You've been free, you fought to be free, so to speak. You'll always be free in one domain, and you willingly say, I'm going to care for this being. Right? I know how I got there, and I'm now going to give this being the chance to also have that eventually. In the meantime, though, I'm going to have to sacrifice something. Right. But it's a willing sacrifice versus, oops, shit, I'm pregnant, now what? Damn, right? And then you have to have an affair with the pool boy when you're 40 because, you know, you didn't live out your things beforehand and all of that. So it's a worthwhile exploration, and it's certainly okay to be scared and feel trapped and want to get out and, uh, you know, run away and join the circus and, and all of those kind of things. It's normal. It's normal and it's healthy. Yes, you, you could do that, but you've done the crazy things, yeah. right? Um, of course, you could always do such things, but you know as much as I do that uh, recapturing the glory of your 20s isn't going to happen, right? Because, of course, nowadays, there's so much more at stake, right? some wild night with a football team in your early 20s. Not that you did that, I'm just making that up, right? Has very little consequences. A wild night with a football team right now has huge consequences, right? Not only on your relationship, but on your body, on how you're going to feel about yourself health-wise, energetically, right? I mean, there's there's all kinds of considerations that when you were young and naive, you didn't have, Mm -hmm. Right, so thank goodness you did the things you did in your twenties because now you couldn't do them anymore. So now you can reminisce about those things, and you can find a different kind of wildness. There's ways to express wildness that don't necessarily include a partner, and that is in your personal, internal pursuits. Right, in the way you move your body when you move your body, in the way you. Um, engage in, you know, in your own sexual pursuits, in your, the, the things you read, the women you hang out with. Uh, you, you can be as wild as you want to be in, within yourself, and it doesn't have to involve your partner. Right? You can engage in rituals and you know, journeys of all kinds, um, and that's your, that's, your, you know, that's your thing. And it probably, the more you live out your wildness, the more la gomme, you're going to be at home, right? <laughs> because you kind of had it, right? No, it doesn't, it shouldn't include him because men in general experience fluctuation of emotion as something unpleasant, right? They don't, they, they don't enjoy that. 
It's it, it's just not what they do, and that and they, and most men are like that. It's just like, calm down. It's like I'm not even I'm not even you know I'm at like ten percent. You know, <laughs> this is a this is a mild breeze, and it's like, for God's sake, calm down. Right? So so you put it other places where it's appreciated amongst women, for instance, right? In nature. You engage with your wildness in nature, which is one great way to engage with it. I used to go surf and rock climb and, you know, really engage in some really wild nature things. And I still love, like, you know, really strong elemental force. I go out in a thunderstorm or in a, you know, raging rainstorm or so. And that's how you can engage with your wildness in a very healthy way, you know. But yes, you're going to feel, you, you, you are right to feel that feeling of entrapment, right, and wanting to break free, because that's a normal part of motherhood. And acknowledging that will allow you to go there. Because, of course, the, you know, the thing that we haven't talked about is that as far as I've been told, because this is a second-hand piece of information, I don't have children, right? And I made a conscious choice not to have children. I have lots of friends who have children, and I have been at many births of my friends' children. And there isn't anything like that, right? There is a certain kind of experience that comes with growing and birthing a child that's beyond anything that anybody can probably actually describe. That's that's going to, by far, make up for the loss of freedom, right? And the love and the bonding and the, you know, the the the, the engagement with the flesh of your flesh, right? Uh, that that's that's a you, you're gaining something that's probably a lot bigger than what you're losing. No. But still still also worry about it because they are actual concerns. And, mind you, not everybody should have children, right? I, I for one, knew that me having children wasn't the best thing for me or the children, right? Because I have a kind of a lifestyle that's not conducive to raising children well, and I certainly would not have wanted my children raised by anybody else, and I certainly would not have wanted to be an absent mother. So if I would have been to tradition, because I'm the firstborn and, you know, blah, 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 uh, in my family, and we're, you know, sisters only, so my sister, thank God, had two children. (laughs) Yeah, so so if I would have been to that, I certainly would not have been the kind of mother, circumstantially, that I would have wanted for my children or that my mother was for me. You know, would I have sucked it up and been good with it? Probably, but I don't think I would be as uh, full and happy and expressed as I am nowadays if I had had children. It's not an easy thing to say, and it certainly uh, makes a lot of people cringe, but, but uh, I'm really glad I didn't go there, you know. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't go there. I think people should have children. But there is some people who shouldn't. No. And I know a few of them. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, I know people who have children, you know, because I'm, of course, as a counselor, privy to hear things that are usually not said. Mm-hmm. And you'd be surprised how often I'd heard women go, oh, shit. I have no idea. I did not know what it would take to have a child, and really, I'm resenting it. And if I wouldn't have to do it anymore, I wouldn't. And I know women who have walked out on their children, right? Which is a real shit thing to do, you know. But once again, there's always worse options. And so... uh, you are you are right to voice these things and you're right to explore them because that's also the only way that you can go beyond them. I mean, that's a conversation, right? That's not in the sexual realm of uh, being able to trust a man to surrender, right? Children are a co-creative process. 
uh, meaning it does, you know, when you two people raise children, there's certain areas of expertise and then there's a crossover, mm -hmm. right? And so one of the ways that you can talk with him if he's providing for the family is to go, we each hold a job. Mm -hmm. You have a job and I have a job. Here's your job description. Here's what I see as my job description. Mm -hmm. And then there's an overlap, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. because one of the things that, of course, happens when you become a mother, often the job description isn't defined. Mm -hmm. right? When you go and uh, apply for a job in an office, they give you a, work, you know, a job sheet, essentially. You have a handbook. Yeah, it's very clear what you're supposed to do and when you're supposed to do that. That's not necessarily true for the one who raises the children. So you could say to him, look, we have these things that always happen. Let us sit down and let us describe our jobs. And then let's look at the overlap and let's examine where the friction is. Because one of the things that I hear a lot from guys is that They're happy to go out and work and do their thing, right, and pay the bills and everything. But they also really, really love their children, and they miss them a lot. And so when they get a chance to care for the children, um, they want to do the thing with the children the way they want to do it. And then you often hear the woman going, Well, that's not how we do it. Don't feed him there like that and don't give him that to eat. And this goes on before that, right? And then, of course, that's a bit of an issue because, of course, you know, he, he, he appreciates what you're doing. I don't can speak for him, but often I hear that from men, right? They appreciate what their women do, but they want to have a little bit of leeway to be with their children in their way, right, without... 80,000 rules that, you know, that have to be. So you have to, I think, talk with him about where are the rubs. Yeah. Maybe it's not that he wants to be uncompromising. Maybe it's just he wants to have a little bit of time with the kids in his way. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, that might tread on your rules and the way you like it or you feel unappreciated. But you can talk about those things. Mm -hmm. Treat it like a business meeting, so yeah. to speak, and say, what about this? What about that? Right? I really want the kids to be fed before to take them out. Right? And then he might say, look, I would really like to go out with the kids before they go to bed. And then you can go, well, okay, so I'll feed them early on that day. Right? Or, or you, th yeah. Those are usually the things that, that cause friction in, in the work that I've done with people. It's really things that when the proper motivation is determined can